0: All right, let's talk about John Donne. Uh, The first poem I'd like to look at is The Flea. This is perhaps his most famous poem. Uh, And think about how odd it is to have a love poem about a flea. Now, there actually had been some, in, in classical literature, there were some poems about fleas, but they were always about the idea that the flea was able to touch the body of the, the mistress, and so you envied the flea, wish you could be like the flea. Um, this is something quite different. Uh, so let's just go through this, stanza by stanza. Mark but this flea, and mark in this, how little that which thou deniest me is. So the first thing he uses the flea as an analogy for is tininess. I mean, that's what we think of as a flea is incredibly tiny. And so what she's denying him is her favors, her love. Uh, It says, me, it sucked first and now sucks thee. And in this flea are two bloods mingled be. Thou knowest this cannot be said, a sin or shame or loss of maidenhead, yet this enjoys before it woo, and pampered, swells with one blood made of two, and this, alas, is more than we would do. So now he's he's taken the flea and he's expanded the analogy. It's not just its tininess. He's saying, look, the flea bit me and then it jumped over to you and now it's biting you. So our bloods are mingled together in this flea. And so this isn't a sin, it's not shame and not loss of maidenhead or virginity. I says, and this this flea enjoys before it woo. this flea is exchanging body fluids and didn't even have to, you know, take you out for dinner first. It didn't no wooing. Um and pampered swells with one blood made of two. So the idea of a, a union here, a romantic or marital union, uh, the two made one and says that's more than we would do. And then notice how in between the stanzas, something has happened in the in the story. He starts off, "Oh, stay! Three lives in one flea, spare." So obviously the lady has, is about to kill the flea, but he says, "Oh no, don't don't kill it." And now he's expanding on the uh, analogy or the metaphor. It says uh, where we. Almost nay more than married are. This flea is you and I, and this our marriage bed and marriage temple is. So this is both the temple where we would be married and the the bed where we would consummate our marriage. Uh, This is the, the union our union just like a marriage. Though parents grudge and you, we are met and cloistered in these living walls of jet. So you now that little um uh, aside and you uh, though parents grudge that's a standard romantic trope that the, the you know like Romeo and Juliet the lovers want to be together but their parents are against it but not only her parents but she is against it and he says well it's too late we are we're met and cloistered that's a religious word the, uh, a cloister is a uh, like a monastery or a nunnery where uh, you're cloistered away in these living walls of jet, this little black flea. Though use make you apt to kill me. I mean, I know you wouldn't mind killing me. You kill my heart all the time by denying me. Uh, let not to that self-murder added be. Again, if this flea is you and I, then you'd be killing me and you'd be killing yourself. You'd be committing suicide. um, And sacrilege, three sins in killing three. So actually, it's it's, it's like a triple homicide Um, Now, and again, we get an event that happens in between the stanzas. Cruel and sudden hast thou sense purple thy nail in blood of innocence? So she's popped the flea on her nail. And the very physical thing of the purple thy nail with blood of innocence, Um, that this innocent blood says, wherein could this flea guilty be except in that drop which it sucked from Thee. So the only guilty blood here is yours. It must have, if, you, if it was guilty, it was because it had your blood in it. As yet thou triumphst, and sayest that thou findest not thyself, nor me, the weaker now. He says. So she's saying, oh, come on, That's, it's just a flea. It hasn't hurt either of us at all. So he replies, tis true. Then learn how false fears be just so much honor when thou yieldst to me will waste as this flea's death took life from thee. So he says you're right, it wasn't a big deal and I'm not asking a big deal either. If you yield to me and we go to bed together, you won't lose, it won't be any more lost than the loss of this flea's life. So we've come full circle and now again the flea is an image of uh, insignificance, of tininess of how uh, how little that what thou deniest me is as he said at the beginning of the poem uh, now think there are a couple of things to to notice in, in the way Dunn writes first of all think how different this kind of imagery is from the images we've seen in the sonnets we've been looking at earlier in the Renaissance uh, this is completely original it's Highly intellectual and argumentative. It's like he's making an argument in a court or something. Uh, And it also, he really pushes it as far as he can go. He's taking this one idea and saying, and it's like this, and it's like this, and it's like this. He's uh, not just using an image and then letting it drop he's taking an image and making the most that he can out of it you know kind of intellectually building up all these analogies for it and that is very typical of Dunn's style um, now the next poem I want to look at is A Valediction Forbidding Mourning now in this poem first of all you have to know what a valediction is it's it's a, a goodbye this is a goodbye poem um, you know, in high school, the valedictorian address is the farewell address at graduation. Uh, so this is a valediction, and it's Forbidding Morning. I don't want you to... don't. Want, uh, we're saying goodbye, and I don't want any tears, is basically what the title means. Uh, by the way, it's not at all certain that uh, Dunn wrote any of these titles for the poems. Uh, they may not be his at all, uh, but they're convenient for referring to the poems. All right, A Valediction Forbidding Morning as virtuous men pass mildly away and whisper to their souls to go whilst some of their sad friends do say the breath goes now and some say no so let us melt and make no noise no tear-floods nor sigh-tempests move to profanation of our joys to tell the laity our love so here's the first analogy here it's a uh, it's an image of death as virtuous men, good men, good Christian men who are dying. They pass mildly away. They're on their deathbed and it happens so gently that their friends around them can't even tell for sure. Is, is he still alive or is he just, you know, he just kind of peacefully drifts off between life and death. He says, that's the way I want our parting to be. Um, now, of course, that's implying that the unvirtuous men would have a very different reaction. They would resist because they wouldn't want to go to hell, but the virtuous man knows he's going to heaven, so he doesn't have to be upset about it. said so, so let us melt, and that image of parting melt, um, no noise, no tear floods, nor sigh tempests. So again, no, you know, don't make a big sighing and crying and uh, all of that. And it says, 'twere profanation of our joys to tell the laity our love. Well, profane is the opposite of sacred. It would make our sacred love profane of our joys to tell the laity. The, the laity is the uh, is the opposite of the clergy the clergy are the the, the priests and the uh, nuns and the members of the church uh well we so we are the clergy the rest of them are the laity this whole poem is setting up those these opposites virtuous men versus unvirtuous men uh, uh profane versus sacred clergy versus laity then he expands the next image. And again, notice the contrast he's setting up. Moving of the earth brings harms and fears. Men reckon what it did and meant, but trepidation of the spheres, though greater far, is innocent. So here's another analogy, and explicitly it's setting up the two different kinds of things. So movement of the earth, earthquakes, everybody gets upset about that. But the movement of the spheres, and now you have to remember that in the Renaissance, their image of the solar system and the universe, in fact, was a series of crystal spheres. And each planet was on one of those spheres and rotated around, well, it was either the Earth or the Sun. That was a controversy at the time. But the idea was, he's saying, the the little shaking of the Earth that we have, that everybody gets so excited and so worked up about it, but... Think about it all the time, the planets, you know, Jupiter is moving, you know, in its orbit, and that's a much greater movement, but it it doesn't upset anyone. It's innocent. Uh, Again, the contrast, the earthly, uh, earth moving and the spheres moving. Dull sublunary lovers, love, whose soul is sense, cannot admit absence, because it doth remove Those things which elemented it. Alright, so what's sublunary? That means below the moon. And in the uh, theological understanding of this time, everything that was below the sphere of the moon was part of the fallen world. Above that, everything is still perfect, Uh, it's still in a state of paradise. So these sublunary lovers, these earthbound lovers, whose soul is sense, all they have are their five senses. They don't have anything spiritual beyond that. They can't bear to be apart. They can't admit absence because it does remove those things which elemented it. They just have the, the five elements. They don't have a higher spiritual life to their love the way we do. It says, But we, by a love so much refined that ourselves know not what it is, inter-assured of the mind, care less eyes, lips, and hands to miss... So we have this more refined love. Uh, Again, it's it's a, a mental, in the mind, a higher kind of love. And so if we don't have physical contact, we don't see each other, if we're not kissing, if we're not holding hands, that's less of a problem to us because our love is more than that. It's more than the physical, sublunary love. Our two souls, therefore, which are one, though I must go, endure not yet a breach but an expansion, like gold to airy thinness, beat. So he says, our departure is not a a break. Our love is expanding. It's like if you, you know, you take a, a, a lump of gold and you hammer it down and hammer it down. It eventually covers a huge surface area, even though it's a tiny, thin layer of gold to airy thinness, beat. And it co- now it's it, the gold has expanded. It hasn't broken. It's expanded. Um, And then, uh, starting in line 25, if they be two, if our souls be two, they are two so as stiff twin compasses are two. Now, you have to get the right image here. He's not talking about a compass as in the, uh, the needle points north. He's talking about the kind of compass that you would use in a geometry class. Right? It's got two legs. One of them has a pin in it. The other has a pencil uh, in it. So you stick the pen in the center and set how far out you want it to be, and you can draw a perfect circle with it. Yeah, they were also used for navigation at the time. Uh, so that's the, the, the stiff twin compasses. So if we're two, we're like the two legs of one compass. It says, Thy soul, the fixed foot, makes no show to move but doth if the other do. So that center part of the compass is set. It's fixed. And it doesn't look like it ever moves. But actually, if you're you're moving around the other leg, the the center leg does move. It twists around with it, even though it looks like it's, it's staying still. And though it in the center sit, yet when the other far doth roam, it leans and hearkens after it and grows erect as that comes home. So again, you've got a picture in your mind. If, if you're drawing a, a small circle, the, the, the center leg is probably straight, vertical, you know, uh, vertically up and down. But if you pull out that leg and you're going to draw a really big circle, then that center uh, leg of the compass has to bend and harken after it. It has to do that. And the closer you get, the smaller circle you're going to draw. The closer it gets to the center, the, the, uh, it grows erect. And yes, that's, if you're having dirty thoughts about that, so is Don. He's got, that's, a, that's an erection joke. Uh, though interestingly, if the center foot is her, it's she who is having the erection, which furthers the idea of the two of them being one and indistinguishable, even in their physical natures. Such wilt thou be to me, who must, like the other foot, obliquely run, So you're going to be my center point, my anchor, even though I'm going to be traveling all over the world and going on this voyage. Thy firmness makes my circle just and makes me end where I begun. Now he's taking the idea of what you do with a compass. You draw a circle with it, and it's the fact that the center is so firm and holds and doesn't move, doesn't dep- doesn't leave, uh, that allows you to make a true, perfect, just circle. And of course, when you're making a circle, you wind up right where you started. He says, that, and so it, it, he's he's saying this is going to be a round trip, quite literally. Uh, I will come back to you. Um, now. Think about, you know, just those last four stanzas or the last three stanzas are all expanding that idea of the compass as a metaphor or an analogy for love. That's very odd. We haven't seen anything like that. There's no Petrarchan cliche about compasses. Uh, You know, Don says, what's our love like? Well, it's kind of like a compass, uh, it's very bold and original. And again, look at how he develops it. He doesn't just say, give one, like the flea, he doesn't give just one meaning for it. He gives multiple meanings and pushes and finds new areas about it, uh, that can, new uh, points of the analogy that he can make. Now, this kind of, of analogy or metaphor is called a metaphysical conceit. A conceit is just an idea, uh, and uh, or a conceit would also be a metaphor in a poem. And they're called metaphysical because Dunn and the poets that he influenced, there was a whole school of what we have come to call the metaphysical poets, though they didn't call themselves that. Uh, and the uh, John Dryden, who was a generation younger than uh, Dunn, Uh, kind of criticized Dunn, saying that he affects the metaphysics. He's getting all kind of highfalutin and philosophical uh, instead of just giving, you know, simple, pretty love poetry. And then in the 18th century, uh, Samuel Johnson, who is the great critic of the 18th century, wrote uh, an essay about the metaphysical poets. And he very famously described the idea of the metaphysical conceit. He he said uh, uh, that The most heterogeneous ideas are yoked together by violence. Nature and art are ransacked for illustrations, comparisons, and allusions. Their learning instructs, and their subtlety surprises, but the reader commonly thinks his improvement dearly bought, and though he sometimes admires, is seldom pleased. So Johnson, and the 18th century in general, uh, uh, and most of the 19th century too, didn't really like these metaphysical conceits. The the ideas are yoked by violence together. He's not taking the standard images of love poetry. He's making up all these weird new things and coming up with these intellectual ideas for things. And uh, for a while, that kind of really went out of fashion. It came back into fashion in the 20th century with the modernist poets like uh, T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound uh, who kind of rediscovered the uh, Dunn and the metaphysical poets and, and put them kind of back at the, the center of what we think of as poetry. And you can see that Dunn uses this kind of imagery e- even in, in his most kind of romantic love poetry. Uh, the Flea is not you know terribly romantic. It's uh, But look at um, The Good Morrow. He says, I wonder by my troth what thou and I did till we loved. Were we not weaned till then, but sucked on country pleasures childishly? Or snorted we in the seven sleepers' den? T'was so, but this all pleasure's fancies be. If ever any beauty I did see which I desired and got, twas but a dream of thee. So he's saying what were you know what what did we do before we were in love you know how what, we were just wasting our time? were we not weaned till then so we we, we couldn't we were like a baby couldn't eat solid food, uh, only sucked on country pleasures childishly or we were asleep, snorted we snoring and asleep, and this compared to this, all pleasures were just fancies um and any beauty that I saw before was just a dream of thee. Uh, but that idea of, of weaning and snorting in the seven sleepers' den, those are, again, not conventional images. Uh, or look at the next stanza. And now, Good Morrow to Our Waking Souls. So this is a morning after poem. They've, they've, they've been uh, asleep in bed together and they're greeting the morning. Good morrow to our waking souls, which watch not one another out of fear. We're not riveted by each other because we're afraid. For love, all love of other sights, controls, and makes one little room an everywhere. Let sea discoverers to new worlds have gone. Let maps to others. Worlds on worlds have shown. Let us possess one world. Each hath one and is one. And, and you, again, you can see here, this is very intellectual poetry. I mean, he's thinking about, this, remember, this is the time he's writing in a time when they were making these great sea discoverers and uh, you know uh, colonizing the new world, discovering America, uh, all of that. Um, or that image of making one little room and everywhere. So we don't need the vast outside world. We have everything we need here, just the two of us. And then it gets even more kind of a metaphysical conceit in the third stanza. My face in thine eye, thine in mine appears, and true plain hearts do in the faces rest. Where can we find two better hemispheres without sharp north, without declining west? So here, the image of the two of them staring into each other's eyes and seeing the other reflect, seeing themselves reflected there. Uh, so they're they're mirroring each other back to each other, um, and two better hemispheres. Now he takes the idea of the the eyeball and makes it like a globe. As he you know talked one little room and everywhere. Now it's all not just the room, but just their eyes become a world. No sharp north it doesn 't get cold, no declining west there 's no sunset. Uh, this is a perfect world. It says Whatever dies was not mixed equally and here, as he does Dunn is drawing on philosophical and scientific ideas from the time, the idea was that the human body was composed of different fluids and humors. And when they were out of balance, that's what made you sick and would actually, actually, what made you mortal. If they were perfectly balanced, you would be immortal. Uh, so, whatever dies was not mixed equally. If our two loves be one, or thou and I love so alike that none do slacken, none can die. So, this is the idea you complete me. If we are mixed together in perfect equality, that means we're immortal; none can die. Uh, now, another layer to that is that in in the Renaissance, the verb "to die was slang for to have an orgasm, and the nun do slacken" sounds like a you know an, an eternal erection. So even at this most kind of romantic and philosophical, there're also at the same time these very kind of body physical Ideas in it too, uh, and the way Donne combines all of those things—the very high intellectual, kind of daringly creative, and you know, also kind of smudgy—all at the same time—is what gives his poems such a, a distinctive feel to them. All right, let's look at the canonization, and this shows another element uh, that's very common in Donne's love poetry. His use of religious imagery—we've already seen that in the in the flea, uh, you know, the, we're cloistered in these living walls of jet, all of that kind of uh, of stuff. Um, so he uses the religious imagery, you know, to tell the laity our love, but here he, he expands on it even more. Just the title: uh, canonization. To can to be canonized is to be made a saint. All right. He starts out, For God's sake, hold your tongue and let me love. Or chide my palsy or my gout, my five gray hairs or ruined fortune flout. With wealth your state, with your mind, with arts, improve. Take you a course, get you a place, observe his honor or his grace, or the king's real or his stamped face. Contemplate. What you will, approve. So you will let me love. So he's telling people, you know, leave me alone, hold your tongue let me let, let us have our love uh, or criticize you know and he he trivializes the critis, criticism he says you're you're criticizing my five gray hairs that's how picky you're getting uh pay attention to yourself you know improve you know you make money uh get an education uh advance your political career you know observe his honor or his grace his honor would be a, a nobility his grace would be the king Uh, the king's real or his stamped face, contemplate. So whether you're in the court and looking at the real king or in your uh, uh, money room looking at the the king's face on all of the money you have, that's what you should be doing. Just let us love. And notice it's setting up a distinction here between public and private. We have this private love that we want to be special. You stay out there in the public world and be successful and make money and get promotions and all that. Says, alas, alas, who's injured by my love? What merchant ships have my sighs drowned? Who says my tears have overflowed his ground? When did my colds a forward spring remove? When did the heats which my veins fill add one man to the plaguey bill? Soldiers find wars, and lawyers find out still litigious men with which quarrels move, though she and I do love. Now here again, he's contrasting this private, personal love that they have with public events. He says, you know, we're not causing any of the things you see on the news. That No, our size haven't caused any ships to be uh, lost at sea. Our tears haven't flooded anything. Uh, my cold hasn't made anybody sick for the plague. Um, he says, soldiers and lawyers are always finding out quarrels. Uh, that's what they do. And that goes on, the whole world goes on, while she and I have our love call us what you will we are made such by love and here we get another metaphysical conceit call her call her one me another fly we're tapers too and at our own cost die so we're we're both flies and tapers tapers a candle so the idea is kind of like a moth to a flame They're each of them, both the moth and the flame. Uh, Each of them is the flame to the other's moth, attracting them, uh, and at our own cost die. Uh, That means both the fact that a a candle burns itself out and that a a moth will run into a flame and kill itself. Um, He says, And we, in us, find the eagle and the dove. So now we've gone from flies to different kinds of winged creatures, eagles and doves, but two completely opposites. Uh, the eagle, you know, you know, huge predator bird. The dove, a small, peaceful bird. So they, they have both of those in both of them. The phoenix riddle, here's another bird. The phoenix, the, the bird that uh, dies and rises from its own ashes. The phoenix riddle has more wit by us. We, we too, being one, are it. We're the, we're the phoenix, so to one neutral thing, both sexes fit. You know, we 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 complete each other. We're, we're one neutral thing joined together. Um, we die and rise the same, and prove mysterious by this love. Uh, and again, there's a lot of kind of body wordplay going on here. Die, uh, rise. Um, the, the the two sexes fitting together physically uh, but also it's in the context of this beautiful image of again rising from their own ashes not like a moth that's gone to a flame and just dies and that's the end but now a phoenix that flashes in a flame and turns to ashes but rises again from its own ashes we can die by it if not live by love and if unfit for tombs and hearse our legend be, it will be fit for verse, and if no piece of chronicle we prove, we'll build in sonnets pretty rooms, as well a well wrought urn becomes the greatest ashes as half acre tombs, and uh, and by these hymns all shall approve us canonized for love. So now he's saying, well, we 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 can, uh, our death in love will prove what. What uh, how great our love is! We'll have this legend. We may not have the the tombs and monuments and everything, but we will have the verse like this poem. Uh, no chronicle, no hist- no history books, but we'll build in sonnets pretty rooms. Now, sonnets was just a generic term for poems, not necessarily a, a, a formal sonnet. Uh, and it says. You could have a half-acre tomb for an emperor, but you could also have the ashes in a well-wrought urn. Notice that idea of ashes comes back to the idea of the phoenix, and we have, they are they are canonized. These hymns, uh, the hymns like you sing in church, will prove us canonized for love. And also, again, notice the dichotomy between the public and the private. There are these public tombs and half-acre. Uh, tombs and all of that but we have the the private not the chronicle histories but little sonnets not a half acre tomb but a little well wrought urn Uh, not public but private to us so they will prove us canonized for love and thus invoke us you whom reverend love made one another's hermitage here again, the idea of, of isolation. A hermitage is where you go off uh, and uh, alone, away from the world, to, uh, to meditate. So they were each other's hermitage. You, to whom love was peace, that now is rage, who did the whole world's soul contract and drove into the glasses of your eyes, so made such mirrors and such spies that they did, did all to you epitomize countries, towns, courts, beg from above a pattern of your love. So we who are, after you're dead, the lovers will, will worship them, see them as a pattern, as saints of love, uh, who've made each other a hermitage. And the idea, of your whole, the whole world's soul contract. You've squeezed all the world into each other. The glasses of your eyes, Think of that image in The Good Morrow, staring at each other's eyes, mirrors, and that contains everything external, the countries, towns, courts. All of them are, they're transcended by this love. So now it's it's reversed by the end of the poem. At the start of the poem, they were the outcasts. The public world rejected them. They just wanted to have their little tiny private sphere. Now here at the end, the uh, people pray to them and want to have their kind of transcendent love. They've become the the model of everything else. Um, again, it's a beautiful love poem, uh, but it's also, again, typically for Dunn, it's got those metaphysical conceits. It's got a very highly intellectual structure to it. Uh, he, he's, al- he's never just uh, having a feeling. He's always thinking about it. Uh, those two aren't in contradiction for Don. He he does them to, to together. And he gives their love a feeling of religious transcendence. Uh, so the the romantic and the religious get intermingled in Dunn's imagination. You can see that again in his poem The Relic. When my grave is broken up again, some second guest to entertain. For graves have learned that woman head to be to more than one a bed. Now this is the idea, and we saw this at the, at the end of Hamlet, right? Where the gravedigger was, you know, getting the the skull of Yorick out of the way so they could put the new body in. That's the, what he's saying here. When my grave is, is dug, I'll be the second guest who's entertained there. Says, and he that digs it spies a bracelet of bright hair about the bone. Will he not let us alone and think that there a loving couple lies? So the idea is that when the the gravedigger digs up his body, they're going to see on his wrist a little bracelet of hair. His lover's hair has been braided into a little uh, token for him to wear. And we'll see there's a loving couple they're dead, but he still has a piece of her with him. Here a loving couple lies who thought that this device might be some way to make their souls, at the last busy day, meet at this grave and make a little stay. So here's the idea. On the Day of Judgment, the God comes back and all everyone will be resu- bodily resurrected and so on that day when he is resurrected and his lover is resurrected they will have to meet because he's got a part of her physical body, he's got a little piece of her hair, so she's going to have to come to him to get it. It's a, a way of kind of they're uh, they're they're finding a, a loophole in the the rules of the the game, so that in this moment before they go to uh, to their eternal fate, they have this moment together to be with each other one more time. It's again just a, a dazzling idea, and it's it's clever, uh, but it's also kind of deeply emotional. Uh, and again, those things are not separate for Dunn. Being clever and being heartfelt uh, don't contradict each other in Dunn's poetry. If this fall, if he, if he's dug up uh, in a time or land where misdevotion doth command, then he that digs us up will bring us to the bishop and the king to make us relics. So if, if misdevotion, if they don't have a real feeling for this, then they'd probably just bring them to a bishop or a king and they'd be declared relics. Uh, then thou, that his, his lover, shall be a Mary Magdalene, and I uh, something else thereby." presumably Jesus. So he's saying, we'll be like relics, the way they have relics of Mary Magdalene and Jesus. And it says, all women shall adore us and some men. And since at such times miracles are sought, I would have that age by this paper taught what miracles we harmless lovers wrought. So it says, you know, the, thing about relics is that they're supposed to uh, facilitate miracles. So he says, well, okay, I'll tell you the kind of the miracles that we lovers uh, made. First, we loved well and faithfully. Now Okay, now that's a miracle. What was our first miracle? We loved each other well and we loved each other faithfully. Yet knew not what we loved nor why. Difference of sex no more we knew than our guardian angels do. So he's saying this was not a physical relationship. The idea is the guardian angels do not have sex the way human beings do. They don't have gender the way human beings do. And we, no more did we. We were like the angels. Coming and going, we perchance might kiss, but not between those meals. So so we might, you know, kiss each other when we met. Uh, Our hands ne'er touched the seals which nature, injured by late law, sets free. So they they never touched each other in in a naughty place. These miracles we did. But now, alas, all measure and all language I should pass should I tell what a miracle she was. So all of this is, but the really miraculous thing was her, this woman that I love. And here again, as so so much of Dunn is kind of uh, putting these paradoxical ideas together, and here we see him, you know, blending religious and romantic uh, ideas together, uh, uh, emotional and intellectual, all of those threads kind of come together in John Dunn's poetry. All right, let's look quickly at uh, Elegy Nineteen to his mistress going to bed. And I'm not going to go through this uh, in great detail, but I want to look uh, at a couple of things in it. And the second verse paragraph that starts on line 25, this is a, a poem where he's telling his, mis- his mistress he wants her to come to bed, and he's telling her to undress. Uh, he says, line 25, License my roving hands and let them go before, behind, between, above, below. Oh, my America! my new found land, my kingdom, safeliest when with one man manned, my mine of precious stones, my empery, how blessed am I in this, discovering thee. To enter in these bonds is to be free. There where my hand is set, my seal shall be. So I want to think about the, the metaphysical conceit here. He's talking about his mistress, and he calls her My America, my newfound land. So, discovering you, letting my my roving hands discover your body is like the, the you know Columbus discovering America. Uh, it's a kingdom, and it's the safest because there's just one man here. It's a, this is a a virgin wilderness, so to speak. Uh, just one man who's the the Lord here. A mine of precious stones. It says how blessed am I in this discovering thee to enter in these bonds is to be free. That's, you know, Dunn loves a good paradox, and that's certainly one. By entering into these bonds is to be free. And it's not clear whether he means that for himself or for her or for both. Um, There where my hand is set, my seal shall be. So it's kind of like, you know, I plant my flag. I claim this land in the name of Spain, you know. Uh, where, Where my hand is set, where he puts his hand on her body... That will be his claim, his seal. Uh, But to enter into that bond is a liberation, a freedom. Or look at the image that he picks up in line 33, the the next verse paragraph. Full nakedness, all joys are due to thee. As souls unbodied, bodies unclothed must be to taste whole joys. So here's the analogy, right? You should be fully naked, the same way that a soul has to lose its body to taste the joys of heaven, so a body must lose its clothes to taste whole joys, physical joys. Um, he says, you know, the, the, they might, you might like the th- you know things that women wear might look pretty and everything, but it's the, it's what's underneath that's more important. And another uh, metaphysical conceit he gets into. Uh, line 39, like pictures or like books, gay coverings made for laymen, are all women thus arrayed. So your outward show, the clothing that you wear, however pretty that is, it's is, they're like pictures or the, the, the pretty cover of a book. It's made for the laymen, you know, the people who don't really understand. They think, oh, what a pretty cover. They don't see what that's not the important part of a book. Themselves, women themselves, are mystic books, which only we, whom their imputed grace will dignify, must see revealed. So here, you know, that image you used before, the the, the upper and the, the sublunary lovers and the true lovers, and some people might be deceived by the coverings, but I'm going to look at the reality underneath it. Or look at the the last two lines of the poem. To teach thee, I am naked first. I, you know, I'm telling you, I want you to get naked. Well, here I'll show you how. I'll get naked first. Why then, what needs thou have more covering than a man? And there's a wonderful ambiguity there. It says, it, Why should you be any, need any more covering than the man who's naked in front of you? Or why would you need more covering, more clothing than a man on top of you to be your clothing, your covering? Um, It's a, again, it's a very playful poem, uh, but very carefully intellectually worked out imagery. Um, And again, there's a lot more to say about that and about a lot of other uh, Dunn poems. But for next time, I'd like you to look at some of Dunn's religious verse. There's a selection of his holy sonnets, And two other poems, uh, Good Friday, 1613, Writing Westward, and A Hymn to God the Father. And I want you to think about why we've mentioned how the romantic poems that Dunn wrote, his love poems, have religious elements and images in them. I want you to see if the religious poems have any romantic or love imagery in them. I think you'll find that they do. But think about what they're doing there. Why? Why he he kind of intermingles those ideas. And think besides their subject matter, the, his his holy sonnets are not about a uh, you know trying to seduce a mistress. Uh, what other ways are? Dunn's sonnets different from the sonnet sequences that we've looked at before? Uh, And in what ways are they similar? And what ways is he using the conventions of the sonnet in in a new way? So we'll be looking at uh, Dunn's religious poetry, which he wrote mostly later in his life. Most of the the romantic love poems he wrote earlier in his life. Uh, So we'll be looking at those for next time. Uh, And as always, if you have questions, my email is drmarkwomack at gmail.com. Thank you for your attention. I'll talk to you next time.